Boo. Okay. Um, no, I was just thinking, I've been here now for some, uh, uh, in, in eight years, and uh, uh, this is the one I want to talk about, but do me a favor, will you? Just as a personal testimony, then I'll talk what I'm supposed to talk about. Take your Bible and go to Ecclesiastes 5. I, I just am struck with something this morning. I want to share it with you. I, it's just such a delight to sit here and listen to uh, my dear friend Al Potts, as I know him, and Dr. Potter, sir, to you, to be sure, but... Uh, uh, we went to school. How, you know, by the way, uh, and actually, uh, Al's put on a little weight. How much did you weigh when you were in college, Al? How much did you weigh? 170. He was an outside linebacker and an uh, offensive guard. Played both ways and distinguished himself on the football team. He was, a, he was a tiger. It was fun to watch. But we were dear friends in college and seminary, and now to be together out here, it's, uh, it's just interesting to see how God, as you wait upon his providences, frames your life. And uh, Ecclesiastes, there's a verse that I love. I shared this, I think, with a class the other day. But let me just do it real quickly. In Ecclesiastes 5, in verse 18, are you there? And, and, and before I read it, let me say that Solomon is here bouncing off of something that he has said back in thirteen, uh, in one thirteen. If you, uh, just turn back there real quickly. Ecclesiastes 1, in verse 13, as he starts this uh, discourse on what it is that gives meaning to life, You remember Solomon who had uh, been uh, gifted with the greatest wisdom and by reason of that greatest wisdom had become the greatest, uh, the the, the most wealthy and powerful man of his day, ruling over the nation of Israel, which at that time controlled the entire eastern Mediterranean world. His fame had gone throughout the world. People would come all the way across the uh, Fertile Crescent just to, and and, and from from beyond, just to uh, wonder at his wisdom and so on. And yet... Solomon had determined that he could perhaps, or he had set out to see if he could discover happiness and meaning in life. You know that, with absent God, under the sun, leaving God out. And he says in verse 13, he says, I set my mind, I'm in Ecclesiastes 1, read it with me, you read along with me. I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. Then he says, it's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of man to be afflicted with. You have something like that? It's a grievous task task. And actually, the word that he uses here is kind of interesting, and you could translate it this way, in, in more in the vernacular. He says, it's a sorry business that God has given men to be busy with. You give yourself to all the things that make this life busy and so on, and that the world thinks make this life meaningful, and you discover this is a pretty sorry business if you leave God out. And Solomon develops that, but in Ecclesiastes 5, he comes to the other side of that truth, and after all of this discussion, he says this in verse 18. I love this verse. It's becoming more and more precious to me, to be honest with you. He says, here is what I have seen to be good and fitting. Now, good means absolutely consistent with the attributes of God. There is no word in the Bible which more summarily captures the essence of who God is than the word good. Jesus says, why call thou, callest thou me good? There is but one who is good, and that is God. Right? So what he's saying here, Ecclesiastes, and Solomon is saying, the preacher Kohelet is telling us, here's what I've seen to be absolutely consistent with who God is, and then he says fitting, and the word means morally appropriate, absolutely consonant with the will of God. So here is, here is something that resonates with who God is and what God desires, and he goes on to say, 
to eat, to drink, and to enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. There's nothing more fitting in the mind of God than you give yourself to the labor he sets before you and that you enjoy it. And that you enjoy not only the effort but also the fruit. But then he goes on to say, verse 19, Furthermore, for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them. The point is that it is true that every good gift comes down from heaven. And whatever good things you have in your life, you need to consciously thank God for them. But at the same time, you need to remember this. It's all important. That not only does God give you those things, but he gives you the power to enjoy them. Right? Isn't that what the verse says? As to every man to whom God has given, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward. In other words, only as you give God his place will you enjoy the good things that God has given you. Because, as it says in the end of verse 19, this is the gift of God. Only God can give you the capacity to enjoy life. And then he says, verse 20, and this is where I was taking me this whole thing. Verse 20, he says, for he will not often consider. That is, the man who acknowledges that God is the giver both of the good things of life and also of the ability to enjoy those things, that man will not often consider the years of his life because God will keep him so busy with the gladness of his heart. And that word that he uses there for in the, in the NASB, it says God keeps him occupied. You have that? It's the same word as you had back there in Ecclesiastes 1 where he said, you know, it's a sorry business with which God keeps men busy. So you leave God out and no matter what you have, life is a sorry business. But you, you give God his place. You honor God for who he is, the giver of all good things. You honor God because he's God and I'm not, as I've told you before, and therefore he deserves to be honored, he deserves to be worshipped, and I ought to lift my whole life out for him. You give God that place and what happens? He, see, he keeps you so busy with the gladness of your heart through the various seasons of life that you don't even notice the passing of years. You don't sweat over the fact that the years are going by because, after all, God keeps you busy with the gladness of your heart. Is that the kind of God you'd like to serve? That's not a bad deal, is it? Amen and amen. And I just give you my testimony. I mean, God brings us out here eight years ago to California, and I don't mean to get too introspective here, but it was a sea change in our life and a very, very different setting and surrounding and so on. And uh, God's been so good to us and given us... Uh, so many good things here, and now good friends coming out like Al Potter and Ron Johnson moving out here, and they're such dear friends. i got other dear friends. I mean, Maddox ain't a bad friend, too, you know, but uh, uh, but ain't nothing compared to Potter, trust me. No, I'm, uh, I'm teasing, but I'm just saying God just, in the seasons of life, just keeps you happy in so many different ways when you give him his place. But that's not what I'm here to talk about. I want you to... I want us to go to the New Testament, and, the, and, and we're going we're gonna to be a little bit heavy this morning. I want you to stay with me, but uh, I really appreciate... Uh, Dave's putting together this series. Is this the inaugural? I think it is, is it not? And we're going to be talking in chapel for the next little while about the church. And that, by the way, let me just confess to you, is a special problem for us as a college, because quite frankly, we're not a church. And, and there are some things that we feel a stewardship to handle that normally would belong to a church. And that, that problem is exacerbated, is made more difficult by the fact that many of you are away, you, most of you, are away from your home church. And and so by reason of that, it's a little difficult for you to maybe get plugged into a church. You don't feel at home in that church. You just kind of show up and go to the church. And you begin to perhaps, uh, well, I think you'll begin to spiritually suffer from the from the simple reality uh, 
that you don't have the kind of relationship to a church that you need. I mean, that's a danger. We're very sensitive to that. And Dave, bless his heart and his staff, honest to goodness, I say I want to commend him very, very carefully, has worked, uh, has been creative and aggressive to honor, first of all, to honor the standards of the New Testament, the requirements of the New Testament, the believers be locked into a church, and also to, uh, to, to be a help to you. So it's, it's, it's a little bit strange, a little bit uh, difficult by reason of the fact that here you are at a church, I'm sorry, at a college, what I said, and uh, uh, you have, you're not out, you're not, you, you're not, uh, 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 you know, you, you're not uh, relieved of your responsibility to be in a local church just because you're here, but by reason of the fa- fact that you're here at a, at a Christian college, you go through daily chapel, you have, quite frankly, quite frankly, you have... Uh, you, you have uh, spiritual resources at your disposal in the daily course of your life other than a local church. You have people to whom you might look as spiritual leaders. You're the RD staff, the student life staff, maybe some of your pro- uh, profs, maybe Dr. MacArthur and so on, just as the college is present. And, and, and your relationship with them is not through a local church. Now, I don't think any of that's wicked or wrong, and I don't think you ought to eschew any of that. But by the same token, by reason of all those realities and perhaps others, it would be easy for you to grow careless about your responsibility to a local church while you're here. Can you agree with that? And we're, we're, we're horrified by that. We don't want that. We don't want you either to, to grow careless and be careless while you're here or, or to develop a careless attitude about it for the rest of your spiritual life, as it were. So with all that... We want to focus for a little while in chapel on the church, the local church. And my stewardship this morning, as I understand it, is to just take you to the New Testament and to lay before you in very, very cursory and schematic fashion what the New Testament says about what the church is, what the purpose of the church is, and perhaps what your responsibility to that church is. So we're going to sort of, and and let me say that, You've never known, I mean, obviously you were born in the age of the church, if you don't mind. You've never known anything else. The New Testament, one of the most dramatic dynamics of the New Testament, is in fact the unfolding of this concept called the church. It's unfolding, like a Polaroid picture. You know, you snap it and you watch it develop before your eyes. Well, as you go through the pages of the New Testament, we have this thing which had never been heard of before, which Jesus introduces very abruptly and and somewhat uh, cryptically, which he calls the church. And the church unfolds before our eyes. And as it does, uh, I trust that uh, we become we become no little bit uh, gripped with our response, with the centrality of the local church in God's plan for this day and for your life. And therefore, I trust you become gripped with the reality that you have an obligation to the local church. Well, let's go through the uh, just the what the. Uh, just sort of a survey. If you will, go to Matthew 16. First of all, uh, I'd like us to think about the, the promise of the church in Matthew 16. Now, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't believe that you can go to Matthew 16 and discern very much about the actual character of the church because it's just, it's just mentioned. It is obviously an anticipation. But let's set the scene. By the way, before I, I go to Matthew 16, let me remind you of something. The word church is two things about actually just the word. This is very, very simple. But number one, understand that the word church was not new to the Greco-Roman world in the New Testament. 
when Jesus used the word church and later on when the apostles uh, speak of the church and so on, they are using a word. What is the word in the Greek? Ecclesia. You must have got that, right? Ecclesia or ecclesia. Uh, they are using a word which is very, very common. And, it, and so it has a prepackaged meaning. That is, when Jesus says in Matthew 16, about he, he talks about building his church, even though that is a new theological term, that is, the word ecclesia has not been used in a theological setting, and Jesus is obviously introducing a new thought, a new concept, and the apostles must have scratched their heads a little bit, but, uh, but they didn't say, what's a church? They knew what a church was. They didn't know what a church was when it was fleshed out in Christian, uh, in, 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 you know, in, in Christian uh, concepts, but they, they knew what a church was. You know that in, in the New Testament, the prevailing culture is what we call the Greco-Roman culture. Rome is in charge politically, but Greece, of course, had been dominant for many years and Rome never had a culture of her own. She pretty much borrowed the, Greco the, 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 the Greek culture, and therefore we were regarded as the Greco-Roman culture. And one of the distinctives of the Greco-Roman culture was the city-state. Do you remember that? Uh, I hope, you know, and, and at this point, you know, you know everything I know about this particular subject. But uh, there was this concept called the city-state. What was the distinctive of the city-state? you remember? Just a little enclave, a city that governed itself. And generally, there was some sort of quasi-democratic government. Well, there had to be some sort of a body, an organization, which would come together and make decisions for the city-state. And that body was called the ecclesia. The ecclesia was the basic local governing body in the Greek city-state. As such, it was terribly, terribly important. Now Rome, in many ways, rejected or, 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 or trampled on that particular governing concept that had been developed by the Greeks somewhat in a limited fashion there in Greece. But nonetheless, the idea of a, of a body of people who gathered together and made decisions that were binding on the group was very, very common. It was called the ecclesia. That makes sense to you? And by the way, it shows up. You remember where that shows up in the New Testament? Remember Acts 19 when, when, when you have the riot of the silversmiths and so on and the assembly three times in the Acts 19 you have the word assembly used and it's the word ecclesia in the Greek but it's not a reference to a Christian ecclesia. It's not a reference to a Christian church. It's a reference to the state, the, uh, the governing body there in, uh, in Ephesus, the ecclesia. So I say that make the point that here in Matthew 16, Jesus for the first time introduces the Apostles to this concept of a of a church which he is going to build, but he uses a word which has meaning to them, and he uses it very deliberately, and he anticipates he expects them to bring with them the common meaning of the term. But now he is going to immerse it with Christian connotation. Does that makes sense to you. And as the old, I'm sorry, as the New Testament unfolds, we watch this as I say this concept of the Christian ecclesia unfold before our eyes. Now that word ecclesia, this is a little statistic, forgive me, but that word ecclesia is used between 114 and 117 times in the New Testament, somewhere around 115 times. There are some textual variants and that's why the, the question. But folks, I want to, I want to challenge you with something and I do some, so with, with a certain measure of trepidation. I am going to confess a doctrinal sin to you, okay? 
one of my own. I only have two, but I'm going to confess one. Uh, when, I, when, when I use the word church, when we talk about the church, I would suspicion that in the mind of most of you, the first thing that comes to mind is what we think of as the universal church, the body of all believers. Most of you who have sat through a theology and you've been taught about the universal church, right? Here's my confession. I don't believe in the universal church. Now, I'm not saying I don't believe it exists. I'm just saying I don't think any time the New Testament uses the word ecclesia, it's talking about the universal church. Now, I'm all by myself on that. And, and, and I, I, honest to goodness, I wanted to confess it to you. I deliberated whether I even should, but I wanted to because I want you to factor that in. I'm going to ask you to make some value judgments on the basis of some things that the New Testament says, and I'm going to try and insist to you that the New Testament says something, and maybe you're going to say, no, I don't think so. And I might as well just tell you right up front, I don't even understand the, the idea of a universal church. I'll tell you, uh, when I was a student way back there in Minnesota at Pillsbury College, I was given an assignment by a theology teacher to trace the word ecclesia all the way through the New Testament, every single use. So I listed out every single time it's used. And I took to every single passage the most fundamental hermeneutical principle that I know. What is the most the, the first principle of hermeneutics? Remember, if the normal sense makes good sense, Seek no other sense, lest it make nonsense. Isn't that what you say? <laughs> In other words, if the word, what it would normally mean, if the, if the word just as it would normally be understood by the listener and the hearer, the first thing, if that makes good sense, just take it as that. I can't find any place in the New Testament where the, where the concept of the local church doesn't make beautiful, majestic sense when the word's used. Now, that's just, like I say. That's my true confessions. But you can, and I don't expect you, I've never talked anybody into it. I've tried. I don't think I've ever talked the first person into it. I'll have to ask Erica if she believes that. Erica, you hear you see that? I don't know if I ever talked her into it. But, um, uh, but, but with all that, forgive me, come back to me. The point is simply this. I will tell you this. I think you're making a, a, a mistake. And I, I think I can say, look, of the 115 times or so that the Bible uses, the New Testament uses the word ecclesia, over 100 of those times, it can't possibly, by any stretch of the imagination, mean anything but local. It says some, either it will be in, in, in the plural, the churches. Well, obviously, those are local churches, right? You don't believe in two universal churches, do you? So, right away, you got local church. Or it will be the church which is at, you know, Corinth or something. So, over a hundred times that the word's used, it can't possibly, by any stretch of the imagination, mean anything but. There are only about a dozen places where there could possibly be anything else. So, with all that, and, and, and maybe that's unfair to, to lay on you, but... All I want you to catch is when you go to the New Testament and you encounter the word encounter the word church, think local church unless there's something really compelling in the theology or the context to, to drive. Well, I don't want to say theology in the context to drive you elsewhere. But come away back to it. In Matthew 16, Jesus uh, for the first time mentions the church. I got to hurry. Think what he says. Think think where we are here. Matthew 16 is about three years into Jesus' three and a half year ministry. It's here in Matthew 16, actually in verse 21, that Jesus for the first time mentions that he's going to die. Now, the significance of that is this, that up until this point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus' disciples have been anticipating Jesus establishing a kingdom. Now rejection is full. Israel, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus has been offering himself to Israel as her Messiah. 
She has demonstrated beyond any shadow of a doubt that she is not going to accept him. And so Jesus begins to plan for a time where he will go away, he will, he will die and depart, be gone for a time, that's the day in which we live, right? And then he will return. Now think in terms of the apostles. I mean, think in terms of what they would have understood. So as he anticipates the time of his departure, the time of his absence, what we call the interregnum, the time in between the two comings. By the way, remember that the apostles knew nothing about two comings until Jesus began to speak about it here. In other words, they didn't think of Messiah coming, departing, coming again. They thought of Messiah coming and establishing a kingdom. Jesus had come. He would offered himself to Israel. Uh, he had been rejected. So now Jesus tells him he's going to die. And in that context, he says, I will build my church. Now, he doesn't tell us really much about the church at this point. He references one other time. He references the church one other time in Matthew 18 and verse 17. You perhaps remember this where he is talking about what to do with a recalcitrant uh, uh, disciple, or, or in this case, remember, the church. And uh, he says you go to him privately and you tell him his sin and so on. Then you take two or three others. But uh, if he won't listen, then you tell it to the church. Now, again, when Jesus said this, unless you want to assume, and to me, hermeneutically, this is not very fair, but if you want to assume that there was a lot of other instruction that is never recorded for us, it seems to me that when Jesus said this, the disciples, as I say, were somewhat in a fog. They didn't know exactly what this church was going to look like, but they were left with this awareness that during the time of Jesus' absence, there would be a body called the church, and it would be the primary focus of God's activity. He would be building his church. Jesus can summarize the interregnum, the time in between his comings, if you don't mind, by saying, I will build my church. that makes sense to you? It's important to Jesus, but it's only introduced there. I haven't got time to walk with you through this, but in the book of Acts, I hope, in the book of Acts, as I say, we actually see the church fleshed out. You remember what happens. In Acts chapter 1, they come together. Jesus has told them, Jesus, as he ascended to the Father, said, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Spirit, which has been promised you. They go back and they wait. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God falls upon them. And then for about the, the next six chapters, what is, do you remember this? I want you to think with me. Do you remember what is the difficulty that convulses the body, the, the Christians, of, of those early months in the book of Acts? And, and, and it's, a, it's a difficulty which God is working overtime, if you don't mind, to, to, get, to, to get past. You know what it is? It is the acceptance of Gentiles into the church. Now, this is kind of heavy-duty theology, and I'm trying to survey it, maybe cheating you on it, but what I want you to see, I think it's very, very important, because I'm going to take you to Ephesians 2 in just a moment, but think about what happens. You have in Ephesians, I'm sorry, in Acts, in the early chapter, you have Jewish, you have Jews coming to Christ. You have those who have already become Jews coming to Christ. There is tremendous persecution. Therefore, the Bible says that many of the Christians, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, fled up to, uh, uh, to Antioch, uh, to Samaria. And when they got there, the Bible says they preached the gospel to none except the circumcised. They really didn't think that you could preach the gospel 
to people who weren't Jews. First of all, you got to become a Jew. Once you become a Jew, you, a Gentile, can a Gentile become a Jew? Well, yes, he can proselyte. He can, to one degree or another, abandon his Gentiles and become a Jew. Now that you become a Jew, now we can accept you into the church. And what happens is, you remember that, that uh, i got to go very quickly on this, but you remember that the, uh, the uh, 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 Christians go up to Samaria, they win some people to the Lord, and, the, and those people up there are not, are not baptized with the Spirit until Peter and John come up. And then when Peter and John come up, the Spirit of God falls upon those Gentile believers. And later on, Peter says, I began to understand that certainly Gentiles were to be accepted because they received the same gift of the Spirit that we received at the beginning. That makes sense to you? If it doesn't, let me just say this. God is having a great deal of trouble making people understand that Jews and Gentiles were to be one in the church. Now, because we live on so far on this side of the cross, because it is such a foreign concept to us that, that uh, the Jews would occupy a very special place. In other words, we've never lived in a day or a place where the Jews were, in fact, God's covenant people, where access to God was, in fact, through the nation of, 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 of Israel. That's the way it was in the Old Testament. You understand that? What did Jesus say to the woman at the well? Salvation is what? Remember? Of the Jews. So in the Old Testament, could a Gentile get saved? Absolutely. Could he get saved without, to one degree or another, surrendering his Gentileness and identifying with Israel? Absolutely not. How did Ruth get saved? What was her testimony? Your people will be my people, and thus your God will be my God. So in the New Testament, now you're saying, so what? Well, go to Ephesians chapter 2. I was going to spend a lot more time in Acts, but I better not. But if you go to Ephesians 2, my point is simply this. The, the marvel of the church, of the local church, the thing which is in a, as powerful a, a sense as any other, which is a testimony to the manifest wisdom of God, according to Paul, is in fact the marvelous reality that in the church, Jews and Gentiles, who had so despised one another, for so long, by reason of the new birth, by reason of the enmity having been torn down, they are made one new man. And in thus, the, thus the wisdom of God is manifested. Now, I, let me take you to Ephesians 2, verse 11. And, and, and I'm a little disjointed here, but just follow with me. I'm going to read quite a bit. Ephesians 2, verse 11. And I want you to read, you know, you follow along in the Bible with me, because I want you to catch this. Verse 11, Paul says, he's writing to Gentile believers, and he says, Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, excuse me, the Jews, of course, refer to you as the uncircumcision. You know what that means, by the way? Uncircumcision means no covenant. See, the circumcision is the seal of the covenant. So when I say, well, you're, you're, remember when, when David got up, he said, why should we, David King, uh, young boy David with the Goliath experience, he said, why should we quake before this uncircumcised Philistine? His point was, he has no covenant. So he says, here were the Gentiles who were without covenant. He says in verse 12, remember that you at that time were separate from Messiah 
excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Now read these verses carefully. He, Jesus, is our peace who made both groups, who? Jews and Gentiles, into one, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. Enmity what? Enmity between Jew and Gentile, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two, what two? Jew and Gentile, into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile Jew and Gentile both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. Drop down to verse 3 of chapter 3. Paul says, are you with me on this? Honest to goodness, time out. Stay with me, because I know I'm putting you to sleep here, but I want to make a point. The, the, the point of Ephesians 2 that Paul is making is this, and, and it's hard for us to digest simply because it is culturally so foreign to us. But by reason of the covenant relationship that God made with Abraham and with Israel, there was an enmity which built up. God commanded Israel to be separate. Now, he never commanded them to be arrogant, and they got arrogant about it, and that was wicked. But you put it all together, and you had a situation where Jews and Gentiles were at enmity with one another. They despised one another. And the Jews had nothing but unbridled contempt for, 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 uh, for, the, for the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, though they tolerated Jews for, in certain places, they really hated them in return. And yet here is a body, the local church, in which one, in, in one body, these two have come together. And that's what he says. And it was through Paul, because Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And so Paul went to the Gentiles, opened that door of faith to the Gentiles, brought the, 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 the Gentiles into the church. And that's what he's talking about in verse 3, where he says, By revelation there was made known to me the mystery, verse 4, uh, well, verse 5, the mystery which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, to be specific. Here it is. Here's the mystery that was revealed to Paul and which he has shared with the Christian world of his day, and, with, and of course through his epistles to, with ours, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power, to me the very least of all saints, and so on. Uh, bring down, drop down to verse 10, because this is where I'm taking the whole thing. In order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and principalities and so on. Those are the, uh, the authorities and the angels. You know what that verse is saying, folks? What that verse is saying is that the wisdom, that, that in, in the local church, and, and i got to say, a lot of people find the universal church there. But now think about it. If this is the universal church, then what it means is that both Jews and Gentiles... What does it take to be in the universal church? Come on, tell me. What does it take to be in the universal church? You've got to be saved. So, if that's the universal church, what it means is that both Jews and Gentiles can get saved. Is that a mystery which was unknown in the Old Testament? Jews and Gentiles could get saved in the Old Testament. But for Gentiles as Gentiles to be made one with Jews in one body and to love one another and to care for one another as they do in the local church causes the angels to gasp. That's what it's saying. The angels who watched God cast the earth into existence. 
The angels who have watched God order human history all through the, the, the ages gasp in wonder and are, are impressed anew with the wisdom of God when they see through the regenerating indwelling power of the Holy Spirit the middle wall of partition torn down between Jew and Gentile and, and, and Jew and Gentile made into one new man. Now, to me, you know, I, 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 there's, a, there's an issue today over uh, Jews who get saved. It's the issue of Messianic Judaism. Are you familiar with that? Should Jews who get saved have their own congregations? I have a lot of trouble with that because of Ephesians 2. You see what I'm saying to you? I don't understand. I'll tell you, I have the same problem, and I have discussed this again and again, every chance I've ever had with, with uh, black church leaders. I have a real problem with the fact that it is so terribly difficult for black Christians to worship with white Christians. I, 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 I stagger over that because of that passage right there. It seems, and I realize that a lot of those things are cultural. I'm getting in the ground that doesn't, you know, maybe I shouldn't be. But, but, but the fact of the matter is that God's wisdom is displayed for the angelic and the human world to see when people who can't get along in any other sphere of life find themselves brothers and sisters in Christ and embrace one another and by the power of the Spirit become one new man in Christ. The angels gasp at that. They did in the first century when the when Jew and Gentile became one. Which is all to say that the the church, the local church, and take your Bible and go to First Timothy three. This I'm done. We'll be done in just a moment. First Timothy three and verse fifteen. Folks, what I'm trying to say to you is this, and maybe it's best expressed in what Paul says in a, in a different figure here in First Timothy three fifteen. Let me take you there, and then I'll 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 draw together what I was saying in in. Uh, uh, in Ephesians 2. First Timothy 3, and let me, let me set the scene here. Remember that Paul now is toward the end of his life. He has left his younger co-worker Timothy in a place called Ephesus. And there are many problems in that church. And so Paul has written to him, giving him a lot of instruction. And by the way, what is the instruction? In First Timothy 1, it has to do with the prayer life in the church for whom they should pray. In First Timothy 2, it has to do with women in the church. Uh, as well as the prayer life. In, in 1 Timothy 3, it's the officers. Remember 1 Timothy 3, you have who should the qualification for a bishop and then a qualification for a deacon. So, let me just time out here. What, what kind of church are we talking about? Universal or local here? Local church, right? Who's the, who's the pastor of the universal church? Actually, I've known some guys who'd like to candidate for the job, but uh, I, I don't think it works. And uh, the fact is, clearly we're talking about local church here. And in that context, look at 1 Timothy 3 and verse 14. Paul says to Timothy, I am writing these things. What are these things? Chapters 1 to 3 here. All this local church stuff. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church. What kind of church? Clearly, it's the local church. He says, I am writing these things to you, Timothy. Because I want you to know how to conduct yourself in the church. And it's the local church, but look what he says about it, which is the pillar and support of the truth. So King James has pillar and ground of the truth, right? Now, I believe that that expresses the, 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 the basic purpose for which God raised up the local church. Clearly he's talking local church there. In, the, uh, in, in Greek culture, in Greek architecture, there is nothing which is more important 
to make a building or an edifice beautiful and attractive, to catch the eye and draw you uh, to a building than the pillar. Are you familiar with that? The pillar is the most important ornamental part of Greek architecture. Remember, the pillars had these beautiful columns that were carefully uh, 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 carved and, and all these, uh, you know, little filigree and so on. So, so the, I believe the point is the pillar is that, and, and by the way, it says the church, the local church is the pillar and the ground. Now, the ground, in, 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 again, in the architecture of that day or the uh, construction of that day, when they would when they would build a building, they would many times they would uh, they would lay buttresses, a foundation on and and uh, uh, they would they would sink uh, beams and so on down to bedrock. Well, what they would do, I'd have to draw this for you, I guess, but what they would do is they would dig away to bedrock. They would sink the beam down under the ground, in other words, to bedrock, the, the beam that was going to be the foundation, and then they would carefully chisel huge boulders which they would bury underground to keep that beam from shifting. And then they would pile dirt over that. Does that make sense to you? So you got this huge boulder, which is called a buttress or a support, and actually what it does is keep the building from shifting. It keeps it firm and stable. All right, now what have we learned here? The church is the pillar, that is, the church is the means by which it is the pillar and ground of the truth. So, let me wind up this way. Folks, according to the New Testament, the means that God has raised up by which, A, the truth of God is to be held up before men and made attractive and draw them to the truth. Isn't that what the pillar does? And the means by which truth is to be kept firm and stable and kept from shifting is the local church. Now, there is absolutely, as you might expect, infinite wisdom in that. You know, there was a time when the evangelical world sort of went a-panting after methods of evangelism that I think compromised that reality. And I want to tie in Ephesians 2. The point is that maybe the cultural or social difficulty that we face isn't Jew versus Gentile. But the fact of the matter is that the gospel is able to work a work in your heart and my heart that makes us makes us brothers and sisters in Christ, and that needs to be put on display before men. Because it's as men demonstrate lives changed by the Spirit that lost men are drawn to the truth. So now, I was going to say to you, there were all these, these methods of evangelism and so on, mass evangelism, and, and especially even in our day, media evangelism and TV evangelism. You know what that leaves out? You know what that leaves out? It leaves out a living, breathing demonstration of the power of the gospel. That's what a church provides. The marvelous thing about a local church is that, you know, it's one thing if a team comes swooping into town or if you turn your TV on and, a, and an evangelist comes on. Folks, forgive me for this, but you don't know if maybe after he turns, it leaves the camera and leaves the studio, forgive me, he goes to a motel with a camera and a prostitute. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that happened, did it not? And so what do we know if I'm a lost man and I'm looking at this guy on TV and he's telling me all this stuff? I've got no way to see it fleshed out. But with a local church, you've got people who live in that community, who shop in that community, who work in that community, who face the vicissitudes of life in that community before a watching world. And the, 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 uh, 
the gospel is held aloft, the truth is held aloft as a pillar and made attractive to men by reason of the church. The church becomes God's instrument of putting the, dis- the truth on display and making it beautiful and attractive to the world. That's the local church. That's what God said. I didn't say that. Paul said it. And, uh, and, and, and we need to honor it. That's God's means. The other thing is, it is the support of the truth. Now, man's wisdom always suggests, and it's wrong, that the best thing to do is to have some central authority. Have some people who spend their whole lifetime studying the Word and they have all sorts of degrees and they sit in a stuffy room somewhere and whenever there's a theological problem, submit it to them and we'll just check our minds at the door and whatever they tell us, that's what we'll do. But you see, that's, that's, that's exactly how truth gets compromised. And the fact of the matter is that the truth of God's Word has been best preserved when individual, twice-born, spirit-filled believer priests gather together as a church committed to the truth of God. They individually, as God enables them, they study the Word of God on their own under pastoral leadership. They take a stand on on, on what they believe the Word of God to say. They do it sweetly, and they maintain the truth of God. That's how truth is preserved. Not through denominations, not through evangelical celebrities, but through local churches. Now, that's what Paul said. Now, so the point is, and with this I am honestly done, Paul says that the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. He says back there in Ephesians 2 that God has so crafted the church that if you honor the biblical instruction concerning the church, that in fact you are going to be a testimony to the wisdom of God before the very angels. Now, I don't believe that you or I can improve on that plan, is what I'm saying to you. And I would suggest to you, and this is going to be developed more and more, but I would, as, in chapel here, but I would, I would suggest to you that as you consciously, because this is where you are in your life, you are, most of you are at the place in your life where in many cases you are sort of internalizing, you know, you've taken maybe values that have been communicated to you by your parents or whatever, and you're making conscious decisions as how you're going to frame your spiritual life how you're going to order before God your spiritual pilgrimage, factor in the local church. Just commit yourself to this, that that regardless of your situation in life, that you really are not going to be faithful to the clear mandate and instruction of the New Testament unless you are aggressively, committedly involved in a local church. As much as we, as we cherish the stewardship which is ours, as happy as we are to regard ourselves in some sense, individually and corporately here at the college, as spiritual mentors. We want to be that. We believe that is God's stewardship for us. But we are not a replacement for the local church. Amen? Is that right? We, we're not pretending to be. We don't want to be. We want you to form habits here which honor the Word of God. And I believe in order to do that, you need to commit yourself to be faithful to the local church. Well, let's have a word of prayer. With that, we're dismissed. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. And, and Father, we, uh, we would uh, happily, happily and enthusiastically acknowledge that we are but servants, that you are the master, that you are the one who gives the marching orders, who lays out the instruction and the, and, and, and the commands by which we are to order our lives. And Father, I thank you for what you're... New Testament has to say about the church, 
And Father, there may be some things that I've uh, that I brought up this morning about which there be some disagreement and so on, but but I pray that you would impress this upon the minds of each one of us that clearly the New Testament demands that we honor the local church. And so, Father, might you? I'd pray that you would bless. We thank you so much, Father, that we here in 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 uh, Santa Clarita that we're surrounded by so many fine local churches that there are so many opportunities. We thank you for churches that have made it manifest that they're happy to minister to our uh, to these students who come and go. So for all of those marvelous blessings, we thank you, and we pray that we might be uh, we might be mindful of them. That I pray for each young person, for each one of us, that we might indeed honor your word, and specifically that we might honor it in this regard: that we would we would become carefully uh, uh, committed to to a local church. Father, we look forward to the weekend. We look forward to the uh, the opportunity of some relaxation and, and, and so on. But, Father, I pray that you might uh, remind us continually of the stewardship that we have. We rejoice in that. We don't count it a burdensome or odious thing, but we realize that as we receive Christ Jesus the Lord, we must walk in, and we can only be faithful to that stewardship by your grace. So we ask for that in all uh, of the busyness of life. We'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are done.